Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within and like the phoenix enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a phoenix tale or a phoenix moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own phoenix tale or your own phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another phoenix. Today's guest is Sharon Simpson, whose work helping to create some iconic art exhibits have been seen around the world. Growing up in Belfast as a war raged around her, she learned to look forward, to see beyond her reality. Learning to adapt, she has been able to move continents, change careers, all of it with that optimism of being able to see beyond. Please welcome Sharon Simpson. Welcome, Sharon, to Phoenix Tales. I always start the conversation off by asking one question, and that question is, has there been an event in your life, personal or professional, that was challenging that might have redirected the course of your life? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Uh, That's an interesting question. Uh, There probably have been several. But if I'm thinking professionally, I would say probably the, the biggest event which is sort of a long-term event, was when my husband got a job teaching at UC Santa Cruz in California. And I had to leave a job that I loved at the American Museum of Natural History and become a freelancer, which uh, I had never, ever thought about doing that. I was very happy being a museum employee, but uh, that in some ways, you know, in hindsight, I think it it was a great thing. But I certainly didn't see it that way at the time. And what was so challenging about it? I mean, I would imagine the unknown and the financial insecurity of leaving a a salary position at a well-known institution and sort of going out into the world can be scary. But what were some of the biggest challenges for you? I think actually even bigger than that for me was the loss of uh, being part of a community, you know, working with other people. And suddenly it was just me you know, just me on my own having to make every decision, but not having the the sort of the, the, the stereotype idea of, you know, having people that you would bump into on the water cooler and we are struggling with a problem, but th- there's some brilliant person that you can just bounce the problem off and together you solve it. That's really what I miss most was having colleagues and a community that, that I was very embedded in. And how long ago was that? And can you actually tell the audience what it is you do professionally? Yes. And it's a little complicated, so I'll try to be brief. But I basically, I uh, started working at the Museum of Natural History here in New York as, as a uh, concept developer uh, for exhibitions. And that basically means working with a curator, a designer, and uh, a whole bunch of other people, media, media designers and creators, et cetera, to put an exhibition together from scratch. Uh, so it's soup to nuts. I moved from that job within the museum when we got an $8 million grant from Congress to take everything that, that the museum both had and created. So, so AM&H has 32 million artifacts and objects in its collection, but it also has this wonderful resource of 200 working scientists. 
So it was to take everything that was created for exhibitions, but also existed in in the uh, museum, both materially and, of course, in the minds of all these great thinkers, and create all kinds of different uh, programs, websites, books, magazines, uh, videos, you name it, to take up to the rest of the country to, to really uh, help promote science literacy. And not just the rest of the country, but the rest of the world. Uh, so this was this all happened in the late '90s, and it happened at a time when your average school had maybe you know one or two uh, computers in the library that was connected to the the internet. So we were having to try to design for for that. You know, we were trying to design things that would work for the average school. And that was a challenge, uh, but it was a wonderful challenge. It was great. So, so that's what I was doing, and and that was uh, that consisted of really producing materials, working with scientists, designers, etc., to produce materials. So, when I went solo, I continued to do that. Basically, was lucky enough to have people that I had worked with on um, outside contractors who were working with the museum, who invited me to work on some projects. So my first couple of projects were um, working on an IMAX movie and working on a traveling exhibition. So when you said that you, one of the biggest challenges was that loss of sense of community, what was another challenge? And then more importantly, what was an advantage that you hadn't foreseen? Well, I'll start with the advantage because uh, honestly, the advantage is that you plan your own time. And I found that incredible. I found that I was so much more productive because it was just me sitting at home. Obviously, I had to have uh, phone meetings with people, but I was not, I didn't have to be anywhere at any particular time. I was in California and I was working with people on the East Coast. And so often I was just sort of sliding out of bed at at 5.45 and having a cup of tea or coffee and going straight into a six o'clock meeting, uh, but in my pajamas. So I, I enjoyed that. And I did find that I was so productive and, and enjoyed that uh, because I've always uh, disliked when I have a schedule, it's just packed full of meetings and I don't have time to think. These days, my job actually pretty much uh, wholly consists of writing, but but back then it was sort of writing and and conceptualizing and thinking, and of course you need time to be able to do those things. So jumping from meeting to meeting meant that I would stay at work really late so that I could have that quiet time, and then suddenly here I was, basically in my home office, and I could have a lot of that time. So that was a huge advantage, and then I think uh, disadvantage was probably really. You know, even that, that was another bug that really turned into a feature because it was this sense of not having community. So uh, the way that I dealt with that was to to create a community. So I reached out to uh, designers, writers, copy editors, people that I had had known and worked with through the years, hired myself as, as contractors to come and work on projects. And we created our own little community and we stayed in touch. And, and that was uh, mostly by email. These were all people that I knew in New York. And I eventually, after a few years, I moved back to New York and then we would actually meet in person. And I found that incredibly helpful. Hmm. And so it's interesting because that takes um, a certain amount of drive and a certain type of personality. And so 
do you think that, I mean, obviously you're, you have the drive, but there was some aspect of your personality that enabled you to just like forge ahead, even though all of this was new and the, and it might've been slightly terrifying. Um, I think it was an interesting time. I moved to California in 1998, and that was a very exciting time to be in Northern California. I was actually working for the museum this time as a consultant rather than on staff and on on a couple of projects. I got to work with different uh, companies in Silicon Valley and also people at Stanford and uh, some think tanks in, in the area. It was an exciting time. I mean, I I had my subscription to Wired magazine and I read it religiously every week. So I was was very interested in how people were adapting to this new way of living. And then you mentioned that there were other big events in your life that kind of reshaped uh, the direction of your life. And so could you name another sort of uh, pivotal moment? Yes, one that goes back 15 years before that event when my then boyfriend, uh, we were both living in London and uh, he had, uh, he worked with some people from uh, Trinidad. They were going back to Trinidad for carnival and invited him. He went with them and he called me from New York where he was changing planes and he said, I really like it here. I think I'm going to stay a week and uh, ended up staying in New York. So uh, I I was shocked. <laughs> um, I had been to New York once and loved it, uh, but was very happy living in London. But after a period of about 18 months of us trying to do the transatlantic thing, I, I then moved to New York. So that, that was another pretty huge event. And what were you doing in London before you moved to the States? Well, I was working in the record industry. And uh, when I moved to New York, uh, actually DJed for a while. So very different career. Yeah. So let's go back to that. Um, so can you tell the audience a little bit about your background that uh, so that they have a sense of uh, sort of like your origins and how you ended up in London, where you might have gone to university? I'm actually Irish and I was born in the northwest of Ireland in a tiny place that no one will have heard of. Lived there until I was seven. And my mother's family had all emigrated to Canada when she was 16. And she was a very rebellious 16-year-old. And she decided she wouldn't go. She stayed. Um, So when I was seven, we all emigrated. My family emigrated to Canada for a few years. After a, a year or two of that, my parents decided they'd go back to Ireland. They liked Ireland after all managed to uh, go back to Belfast, which was in the middle of a war. Right. I was going to ask the time period. (laughs) Yeah. And left there when I was 18, went to university in England. I don't consider myself very strongly from anywhere because I I did do a lot of traveling when I was young and have never really felt at home anywhere except New York. Can you go back to when your parents moved to Belfast during a very turbulent period? How old were you? I was 11. So you you probably have memories of the amount of tumult that took place in that city. And do you think in some ways that experience shaped you or in a way gave you permission to just be like, I I can live anywhere, right? Because I, I can't really have roots in a place that was, you know, so driven by different factions and all of that. Yeah, I, I, I 
Beyond any doubt, absolutely. And I think partly because I didn't come from there and 11 is, 11 is old enough, right? That you, you're, you have a strong sense of yourself. And so it felt very alien. The um, arguments felt very alien, very difficult. But I think what it, what it did do was it made me turn in on myself. I, and I don't mean that in a negative way. So I became a great reader because uh, reading is always a great escape and it's a wonderful escape during a war. And I became very obsessed with music. So I, I knew absolutely everything about popular music and pop culture, just completely obsessed. And those were my ways of, of escaping from the actual reality that was around me. So I actually think that was a huge advantage. This is something that fascinates me because I was very, very driven to do well in school, get into a good college and leave. That was my goal. That was what I was going to do. I was very, very unidirectional. And uh, I do think growing up in that kind of environment, you know, I, I'm not sure who I would have been had I not grown up in that kind of environment and had other opportunities. Who knows, right? But I do think that that made all the difference with that and well, what I was going to, well, actually what I was going to say, not sure if this is relevant, but I, I actually did grow up right in the middle of Belfast. I was not in a leafy suburb. So I was very exposed to everything that was going on around me. I was in bomb scares. I was in bomb buildings. I was in all kinds of situations, but I was a teenager and I'm you know, thinking about this a lot right now with what happened in Afghanistan last summer with what's going on in Ukraine. And you are incredibly resilient at that age. Uh, and, and I think the more you live in your head, and I definitely was one of those kids who lived in my head, the more you can, you can think your way out of it or through it or something, something that's a good survival uh, mechanism. And when I left at 18, I have to say I, I left, you know, I very much left. I, I come from a very, very close family and a large extended family. And the, the day I left, the night I left, I took a ferry over to England and there was a huge crowd of people, my parents, my then boyfriend, my siblings, lots of friends, a few relatives, all drove to the port to wave me off. And I, I have this very strong memory of walking onto the boat and thinking, that's it, I'm gone. And I've often thought of how callous that is because they're, they're <laughs> my poor mom and dad, you know, because they didn't want, they didn't want me to leave, obviously. Right. I was much loved and I much loved them too, but it just felt like this wonderful freedom. One thing that, that came up about five years ago, I was talking to a friend in London who uh, is a psychologist and was telling me that there have been many studies and are still many studies of my generation in Belfast, particularly. And that we all suffered tremendous trauma and ways that people have overcome it, et cetera. And I had never thought about myself in that way at all. Yeah, I was going to ask because, you know, you can see the parallels of what's happening right now. And, and the images that you see are just beyond heartbreaking, right? And the thing that I think about all the time, especially with the children and um, the teenagers is the amount of trauma that they are surviving and living under and the ways in which th that trauma will continue to inform them and, and continue to inform their lives. So when you had that conversation, were you able to unpack for yourself? Like what, what were some of the effects of the trauma of having lived in 
a war zone. And like you said, you were built in buildings that were bombed and so forth. And I'm sure you were afraid to walk past trash cans because there were. You know, yes. Right. Well, actually, um, you didn't have trash cans. <laughs> you didn't have street ones. Actually, I was in New York during 9-11. And I can remember having to take the subway, you know, maybe three or four days after 9-11 happened and running up to the booth in the subway station when they still had booths and saying to the two people working there, take all the trash cans out. You should not have trash cans in here. They're just bomb receptacles. And they looked at me as if I was completely crazy. And I remember I had done it before I even thought about where that came from. And, and that kind of thing can happen to me. And, and I think as time goes on and it becomes more distant, but when I first moved to England, again, I was, I was very into music and of course, uh, had not been able to see very much live music and certainly no, uh, no national or international acts of any size. So when I went to England, I was so excited that I could, I could, go and see all kinds of bands and musicians and it it coincided with with punk and new wave and friends would joke would make jokes about it but but i've thought about it since then and actually it wasn't a joke at all but i would always have to be positioned in a place where i could see all the exits and i could see who was coming in and out and uh and same if i met friends in a bar i always had to be facing the door and i had to know the other ways in and out of the building so things like that come up all the time. And, and I realize it's a kind of second sense that you develop when you grow up in a situation like that. It's also given me a lifelong, I wouldn't say fear, but wariness of police and soldiers, etc. Yeah. And I was going to ask, so, you know, now the catchphrase in sort of pop psychology is like something will trigger you. Yes, yes. <laughs> So, you know, and that triggering event can be a whole host of things. So right now, as you sort of turn the news on and see the devastation that is occurring in Ukraine, does does any of that kind of trigger those memories? Oh, very much so. But I think I try to balance that with a strong sense of empathy, you know, so, so yeah, obviously it triggers it. It reminds you of situations that you're in, but I, I just feel very, very strongly for the people in that situation. I'm very aware that I'm not, that I may have been once, but I managed to survive it all, luckily. And what can we all be doing to help? I, I feel fortunate. I don't dwell on it. And, and then going back to that other pivotal moment where you um, had been in London DJing, that is a surprise how <laughs> one goes from DJing to working at the Natural History Museum. So I may have to ask that question now. How does one make such a big transition? Yeah, it is a good question. Um, DJing in New York in the 1980s, as you can imagine, was quite an experience. And I DJed at the Pyramid Club on Avenue A and Save the Robots on Avenue B, which is an after hours club that didn't even open till one or two in the morning. Uh, so it was very much downtown uh, New York. And because of that, and because of the period, it was very dark in many ways. It was a lot of fun, but it was, it was pressure. It was high pressure. It was unusual to be, to be female. And there were always people, <laughs> there were always people ready to stab you in the back and take your job. So that was, that was stressful. That wasn't a situation that I was used to. 
So there was a lot that was difficult about it. There were a lot of drugs, a lot of very serious drugs. There was AIDS. So people that I worked with were dying. Some of them had absolutely no resources. So there were always benefits. There were always ways to try to raise money. Uh, There was a good deal of consciousness about all that. And I got burnt out. And so I went from that to working in theater, working as a stage manager, again, downtown New York, so off, off Broadway, but really interesting experimental stuff. And then the, the, the old boyfriend, who was still the boyfriend, um, he and I decided we've had enough of New York. Let's go to Mexico and teach English. We had both just left London and moved to New York, so we thought we could leave anywhere and go somewhere. We spent six months traveling around Mexico, staying in Mexico City for two, two prolonged periods during that. And sort of knew as soon as we got there that we actually didn't want to teach English because it didn't feel like we would, we would really get a sense of Mexico. We decided, believe it or not, that what we wanted to do was go back to London, go back to school and work for Doctors Without Borders. That was the way we wanted to travel the world. So um, we went back to London. We both uh, had to go back to the equivalent of your last couple of years in high school because we were both very much arts people who had, you know, studied languages and literature. And uh, in the course of that, I learned that I was coming up to 30 and 30 was the cutoff point for women in Britain at that time. I hope to God it's not the same anymore, but at that time... Uh, once a woman was over 30, she couldn't train to be a doctor. And I was so outraged by that, that I decided I wouldn't bother. I wouldn't bother trying. I would just teach instead. But uh, my husband decided he would, he would actually continue to study, but not go for being a doctor. He wanted to be an ecologist. And then he was offered a place at Yale. So we came back to New York. I was making connections again with, with, everyone that I'd known when I lived there. I'd only been away three years. And uh, one friend who I'd worked with in theater had a friend who was working on audio tours for museums and needed someone in New York who could uh, coordinate between the company and uh, the Museum of Natural History. And that's how I got my foot in the door at the Museum of Natural History and how I kind of segued into a museum career. That is fascinating. And then during the process of making these transitions, because you've had quite a few and dramatic ones, did you ever encounter a moment where you thought, don't know if this is the right choice? Don't know if I'm capable of doing any of this? Only about a million times. And I still do. (laughs) Every time I take a new job, because I work on exclusively for the last 10 years or so on on exhibitions. And those have varied from maths, the topic of math, to uh, all kinds of archaeological exhibitions, Pompeii, Cleopatra, King Tut, Saturday Night Live, Hamilton. And um, every time I take on a new project and, and you, you know, someone calls you, you talk the thing through, that you get to the contract, the contracts uh, part of the process, and that's exciting. I sign the contract every time I sign a contract, and I hit send to send it to whoever has to <laughs> contract sign it. I think, what the hell have I done? What on earth do I know about whatever the topic is? 
So um, yes, the answer to that is all the time. And I think that's really healthy. And um, I once had this, well, not once, I mean, for a period of about three or four years, had a great boss. And uh, she actually made t-shirts for all of us that said, making new mistakes every day. And uh, she's someone who had worked at Apple at, in, the very, in the very early years when there really weren't many employees. And I think a lot of that ethos came from that period of her life. But she used to encourage us to take risks and would say, you don't achieve anything or you don't do anything that's new and interesting unless you take risks. And when you take risks, you're going to make mistakes. And the healthy thing to do is just learn from those mistakes. I think I had a lot of that in me already. And then it was wonderful to have a boss who actually encouraged it. But um, I think I've always been very good at just looking forward. I'm not someone who has regrets in life. I don't go back and think, hmm, when I was on that beach in Mexico, if only I sort of thought about this as a career instead of, of this. I've just, I've just taken whatever uh, pathway I, I happen to go on, which often feels pretty damn random, I can tell you. And, and just gone with it and, and seen where that takes me. And do you think that the ability, because actually what you're saying uh, resonates with a number of guests that I've interviewed, right? Yes. The ability to not look back, but only to be looking forward and, to, and not live in a lifetime of regret. I'm wondering if that sort of nature or always looking towards the future was somehow informed by the fact that you lived through a war. Yes, yeah, I absolutely do. Because while I was living through a war, I was so focused on the future, you know, and getting out of it. And I, I, it wasn't even, there was no self-doubt in my mind. I was going to do it. And I actually remember um, a, a very, very popular girl in my, my class at school who I loved, everyone loved. And she was, you know, she was one of those people. In high school, I really looked up to her. And I remember I had gone to university, I'd gone to England, and, and that was a hard transition. I mean, I, I can remember finding it very, very difficult going from the situation I'd gone, I'd lived in to sharing a, a, a dorm, you know, with, uh, with a bunch of other people, other 18-year-olds from all over the UK, um, mostly English and from some other countries. But uh, they're experience had been so different and uh, they felt like babies to me because I think I probably already lived about five lives compared to the lives they'd had. So that was a difficult transition. And I, I, I remember going home the next summer for a few weeks and uh, bumped into this, this girl who'd been so popular in school and uh, was, was going to a local college and struggling there. And uh, we had this we had this nice chat. I remember her saying to me, I'm so in awe of you because of what you've done, because you just left and you're just doing so well. And it made me feel like I could do anything. It's interesting that you had that reaction, because sometimes when people go through a trauma like that is in the face of, like you said, you know, the, oh, my God, I'm going to fail. Why did I sign this thing? That People can be held in a state of paralysis, right? Yes. And the fact that you never were paralyzed by any of this, but only thought that, oh, I'm going to get off this island. I'm going to go somewhere else and make a new life. And do you think that was more of your personality, but also perhaps the way that your family might have raised you? Well, definitely. I mean, three things about that. One, 
of course, when you tell this story, it sounds like I was just full of confidence and whatever. Of course, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of self-doubt and a lot of moments of, can I really do this? Da, da, da. But, but I would just power through that. I think the way that I was raised is very, very uh, important. I, I had him and my mother is dead, but my mother was someone who always worked. She always worked full time. She's trained as a nurse and uh, by the end of her career was practically running a hospital, a very, very large teaching hospital. Um, she was just the most amazing mother to have. But my mother was this wonderful role model because she worked full time. She was very much a full-time mother, even though she wasn't physically at home, because we would come home from school. My mother actually worked in a hospital that was, the, at the time, the leading place in Europe that uh, dealt with gunshot wounds, etc. So she was, she was really in the middle of it, and I used to worry a lot about her and situations that she was in, but I was, I was just very in awe of my mother. And we, we didn't actually get on so well. We argued a lot. Although someone that I met at a party many years ago said, aren't you lucky that you had a mother who let you argue? And she did. She encouraged debate and argument. But she was a very, very independent person. Um, she, she worked really hard. She was a terrific mother. So I just feel like I had this, this great, I had this great start in life with the family that I had. And, and throughout my, teenage years when things were really very difficult. My mother always just kept a very, very steady head and um, I think didn't ever instill in us any kind of sense of panic or whatever. So I, I do feel like that was a huge advantage. So when you look back to all of these, you know, pivotal moments and you kind of can take one thread and thread all of them, what is that one thread to you look like? Like one commonality, like what was it that you can sort of say, oh, because of this experience is how I got to point B, C, and D. I have this incredible gratitude that I'm an optimist. You know, sort of going back to what you were saying earlier about looking at the way people are having to live today, at, say in, in, in Keith, right? I think if, if you're an optimist and you're in that situation, if I were, if, if I were a, an 18-year-old in that situation, I could imagine I would be signing up, you know, to join the, the Ukrainian army or whatever it is. So I think having the kind of disposition where you are an optimist and you get up every morning, I can have had a terrible day the day before, but I tend to forget it when I, I'm sort of like a seven-year-old. You know, I feel I get up every morning and I'm just ready to embrace, embrace the day. And of course, sometimes it goes downhill the whole way from there, but often it doesn't. I mean, I can, I, I, I have strategies. I go for a walk every morning and I rarely come back from my morning walk, not feeling very energized and ready to just attack the day. That's a great place to end. So I'm going to ask the last question and sort of rather unfair given your background, but if you could name one song that resonates with you or has felt as though it, was, it were written about your life. What, what is the name of the song and why? Well, the song would have to be David Bowie's Starman. The reason being that it had such a big effect on me when I was 14 years old. And I think because it's such a crazy song, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a science fiction song, really, right? It's like a little mini sci-fi movie. 
But I think because it was about something that was so weird and different and impossible and not in any way grounded in reality, it just really spoke to me. And it, it's just always been my favorite thing. Like that song comes on and I melt. So yeah, Starman. And, and just because it's not grounded in reality, that's why you liked it? I think so. Well, I mean, I liked it because I was crazy about David Bowie and it's a great song and you can sing it. But I think I liked, I just liked the whole fantasy, the whole fantasy. I love space. I love anything to do with space travel. So it kind of ticked a lot of boxes for me. That's great. Thank you so much for doing this, Sharon. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales, a show about women overcoming challenges and like the Phoenix to be reborn, their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune in to our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Yuliana Kim Grant. The show is edited by Podigy. Music is by Ryan Pruitt. It's like a dream, so let me never wake up. I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud. A little time, a little patience when I got tired of waiting. Then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud. And they gon' ask me why I do it, I'ma say this because. We gon' be the best on earth, just like we be out in rust. Pass behind me like a book bag, hanging down a coat rack. Focused on the future, not that coulda, shoulda, would have. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave your comments on the platform where you get your podcasts. If you think you have a Phoenix Tale, please send us a note on our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you just want to stay connected to Phoenix Tales, once again, you can go on to our Instagram and Facebook pages to get all the latest updates.